for Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today is April 18th, 2019, and our guest is Maya Henry. Hi, Maya. Hi. Maya is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. Is that right? Is that how I mangle that? With a joint appointment in neurology at, uh, at the University of Texas at Austin and the Dell Medical School, which is also part of the University of Texas. Uh, she directs the Aphasia Research and Treatment Lab, which uses current approaches in clinical neuroimaging to study the cognitive and neural bases of spoken and written language and the rehabilitation of language impairments associated with primary progressive aphasias. Around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. George Perry. Hello. Uh, Nicole Witcha. Hi. And thanks, guys, for joining us. So just to start, so aphasias and the, and the rehabilitative approaches used to manage them are really diverse. Given your vantage point as a speech pathologist and neuroscientist, can you just kind of broadly distinguish for us some of the types of aphasias and their underlying causes, and then tell us specifically about why your focus, which are these primary progressive aphasias, are such an interesting challenge from a rehabilitation perspective? Sure. So uh, you're right. Aphasia can present in a lot of different ways, um, depending on the the etiology, um, the underlying cause, and um, the kind of the site and size of lesion. If we're talking about stroke patients, all of the early work in aphasia, which predates even Broca and Wernicke, when people started to characterize um, sort of what parts of the brain seem to be involved. Um, in patients who who present with aphasia, um, there was an, a very early understanding that the site of lesion seemed to be related to the presentation, and the famous pronouncement that the frontal lobe seemed to be involved in speech production, and then more posterior regions in the left hemisphere seemed to be involved in comprehension of language, and then from there, um, the classification scheme for aphasia has really um, kind of developed and 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 now some people suggest that we don't need a classification scheme at all, that it's not actually helpful because it means that we're lumping patients into groups and missing all of the interesting heterogeneity that we should be embracing and learning from. Uh, but clinically, as a speech pathologist and as somebody who trains people who are going to become speech pathologists, I need for them to understand those categories because they need to be able to go out into the world and talk to neurologists about what Broca's aphasia is and what you know this patient presents with. And also the, the diagnostic categories are a shorthand, a clinical shorthand that captures a bunch of different features. So I could say... Um, well, the patient presents with non-fluent language, a loss of grammatical knowledge, uh, concomitant motor speech impairment, relative sparing of comprehension, or I could say they have Broca's aphasia and apraxia of speech. Um, and in a clinical setting, that's a really efficient way to communicate. So I maintain that these classifications are useful. But, but more to the point, so in the, in the days of um, kind of the heyday of the Boston VA with with Geshwind and colleagues, they were really spending a lot of time thinking about specific brain correlates for specific types of aphasia. And this classification scheme emerged with all these this, uh, these non-fluent aphasias where patients uh, seemed to have frontal damage and had trouble with um, producing fluent 
And these speech. are all in the context of stroke. All in the context yeah. of st stroke. And then, and then uh, a group of flu fluent aphasias where speech is flowing but maybe lacking in content, maybe very, very errorful. So broadly, we, um, as clinicians and even as researchers, we tend to default to this binary distinction of fluent versus non-fluent patients. And fluency is really... Um, uh, it, it captures a lot of different things. It captures grammar and it captures motor speech and it captures word finding and it captures speech prosody or the melodic line of speech. Um, so, so it's actually pretty complex, but we use it to, to broadly define patients into those with frontal lobe damage versus those with more posterior damage. And that distinction holds up pretty well. And then there are subtypes therein of uh, we, we tend to classify patients based on a few different domains. So whether they have naming impairment, which is everybody, how good they're, whether they're fluent, um, how good their auditory comprehension is, and how good their repetition ability is. And from that, you can arrive at an aphasia type that, based on this Boston classification scheme. Repetition is of interest not because it's a functional communication skill, but because it tells you about the integrity of important language regions for comprehension and production. So if somebody can repeat, we assume that left parasylvian cortex is relatively intact. If they can't, then we assume that it's not. So those are the kinds of, of distinctions that are important for clinicians, that are important for my graduate students. Um, and then we get to the point in, the, in my aphasia class where I say, but now let's forget all that and talk about this other thing, and that's primary progressive aphasia, where these syndromic classifications don't work very well because uh, these are patients who've not had strokes. And they have a gradual onset and slow decline of, 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 of language, I should say. Um, and their presentation can look pretty different from people who've had strokes. So the, the assumptions about how we can classify patients don't work very well. Um, but also the, the interventions that we implement aren't necessarily going to look the same. Um, there is a lot of overlap in terms of treatment techniques. Um, and a lot of what we do with progressive aphasia is borrowed from and adapted from um, stroke aphasia literature and research. But the challenge from an intervention standpoint is to think about not only where the patient is now, but also where they're headed when they have progressive aphasia. So these patients typically language is the first casualty of some mm -hmm. sort of focal, and you see this in, in the imaging studies, right. that there's this really focal uh, area of atrophy. Right that then takes like a decade to fully spread and become basically lethal for all other aspects of life. So it's such an interesting idea in, the, in terms of degeneration and degenerative processes. How often is degeneration focal that way? And are there other modalities that are so specifically, you know, so specifically effective? Because language seems really special that way as, a, as an early indicator. So I think we've come a long way in terms of our conceptualization from a clinical standpoint um, of dementia more broadly. Mm -hmm. And so we don't just talk about dementia as a unitary phenomenon, but there are a lot of different clinical manifestations. And so my focus is on these language variants, but the amnestic variant of Alzheimer's disease is also pretty focal. And is that really? Is that true? Where, where do you see the sort of focalization? I'm pointing to you, George Perry, who is our Thank local you. Alzheimer's specialist. Yeah. Uh, not so neuroanatomical, but you can see focal changes also in memory things, in very distinct type of memory problems, just as you're seeing for uh, speech. But is it lateralized? I mean, yeah. some of the, yeah, that's some of the brain's 
-hmm. she was shown has had morphological defects on the left side yeah. only. Yeah, right. that can be Why? true for memory changes too. Is that right? So there are Alzheimer's patients who have like left side hippocampal loss and the right side is okay and they... There have been cases that have been reported like that. So do you have do you have the same patients on the right side? They just don't show aphasia? So you have degeneration specific to the right? Yes, we do. So um, there is... I showed today in the talk um, an image that was supposed to capture the semantic variant of PPA in the focal anterior temporal lobe atrophy. That disease is actually bitemporal, and in the aphasic presentation, we see left greater than right anterior temporal lobe atrophy. There's also a right temporal variant where where we see that the 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 bomb went off, so to speak, in the right ATL. Um, and so, in those individuals, we see um, a completely different pattern. They have more of what you would consider kind of typical right hemisphere deficits. They have trouble with social and emotional processing. It still seems to be kind of semantic in nature, but whereas the semantic network that's anchored by the left anterior temporal lobe seems to be much more verbal because it's wired up with the left hemisphere language system, the right ATL semantic system seems to be more about social and person knowledge, um, including processing of faces and things like that. And so these individuals have trouble with recognizing famous people. They have trouble with people, with the conceptual aspects of recognizing people and with, with recognizing faces. Um, and it's not prosopagnosia in the sense that they can't process faces visually, but they've lost the concept of the person. Yeah. So I have a question about, so if these, uh, um, aphasias that you're studying are, are have such localized brain damage, and then strokes are somewhat localized. But you said the classification schemes don't really go across. So is that the nature of the loss or the structure of language, or why are those so different? Uh, you know, why why would they be so different? Yeah. Well, this is a really good question. It, you can get a clinical presentation from a stroke and a clinical presentation from neurodegenerative disease that cross-sectionally can look very, very similar to each other. So two people who look like they have a classic Broca's aphasia, for example, that can happen. Um, but there are stroke aphasia presentations that you don't ever see um, in primary progressive aphasia and vice versa. And so I give the example of semantic dementia or the semantic variant of PPA. Um, so this is atrophy that starts out in the, temporal, in the anterior temporal lobe, and we think this is some kind of semantic hub. Um, and, and these patients have a loss of conceptual knowledge, so they have trouble with processing words, but eventually they have trouble even recognizing things and people in the environment. Um, you don't see that in stroke patients, in part because of the, the nature of the vascular distribution to that part of the brain. It's fed by two arterial systems. So you're unlikely to have a stroke just wipe out that part of the brain. So in part, it relates to the fact that one of these, uh, that, that in progressive aphasia, you're dealing with ne network-based neurodegeneration. So along the lines of these specific speech or language networks, whereas in stroke, the lesions are happening based on the, the vascular distribution in the brain. And so we tend to get 
we tend to see patients who've had left MCA strokes, middle cerebral artery strokes that affect that critical perisylvian region, but not so much the, I guess for lack of a better term, extrasylvian regions that are also important for language processing. And some of those regions are implicated in progressive aphasia. Uh, so the clinical terminology just doesn't work very well. It's just not very helpful. Um, and again, some people suggest that we don't need syndromes at all. Um, the, the progressive aphasia clinical syndromes are not just unique in their phenotype, but they correspond to different patterns of underlying atrophy in the brain and to different disease entities. And so there are three different clinical subtypes that seem to be informative relative to the actual disease that's causing the problem. In, in stroke, you notice that there's recovery with, with or without training. And in neurodegenerative disease, you mentioned that there's some recovery that may actually screw things up worse, misconnections, or at least you speculated about that. Why do you think there's a difference in terms of having productive recovery in degenerative disease? I think you can have productive recovery in stroke or neurodegenerative disease. I think you can also have maladaptive rewiring in stroke or in neurodegenerative disease. So there's some discussion in the literature about whether recruitment of the right hemisphere is actually helpful with somebody who's had a stroke. Um, and it's not an easy question to answer because it basically depends, it would seem, on the amount of damage to the left hemisphere, whether right hemisphere recruitment is beneficial. And of course, the specific domain of language that you're looking at is relevant as well. Um, I think that the key difference is that in patients who've had stroke, they undergo a period of pretty rapid physiological restitution when their brain is healing and you just see this natural recovery of function that's related to swelling going down and clearing out of toxic things in the brain, um, reperfusion of regions that have been deprived of oxygen and glucose. And so in that first, you know, three to six months, you just see people changing pretty rapidly. Um, and then people continue to recover because of behavioral compensation or, or certainly as a result of treatment, we think, um, for a long time thereafter. Whereas in primary progressive aphasia, the the attempt to rehabilitate is set against a backdrop of underlying de neurological decline. So the, the brain is, is continuing to deteriorate. And so um, that's important just in terms of understanding this kind of difference in, in how people evolve over time, but also from a rehabilitation standpoint. And so, do you think that the acuteness of the disease actually triggers the brain into a different mode than, than the slow decline, like the brain just doesn't react to the slow change? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important question. I don't, I, so I heard John Krakauer speak, um, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago at UT Austin, and he was talking about motor recovery after stroke and talking about this window in the, the acute stage where um, the brain is basically primed to recover function, something uh, some biological mechanism. And I thought that was really interesting because in aphasia intervention, in stroke aphasia intervention research, we always wait six months post-stroke to enroll patients because we want, for intervention studies. To be stable. Because we, we, we don't want our intervention effects to be confused with uh, spontaneous recovery or for that to be a potential criticism of what we do. 
But now I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe we really should be taking advantage of some critical window in the acute stage. It's complicated because people are medically fragile and they're in the hospital or what have you. But I do think that, back to your question, that there is, there is an important difference there. There's also the opportunity in neurodegenerative disease for the brain to gradually reorganize itself, which you don't have in, in stroke aphasia. You have a sudden devastating uh, onslaught to the brain, which is not the case um, in neurodegenerative disease. So there's probably uh, neuroplastic change taking place very, very early on before somebody's even obviously symptomatic just in order to maintain their current level of functioning. And we don't know enough about that yet because we don't see those patients. Mm-hmm. Do you see inflammatory processes in these, in these scans <clears throat> for, for the aphasias, for the, the progressive aphasias? There's certainly, and, and Dr. Perry can probably comment on this better than I, there certainly are inf- inflammatory pl- processes at play. That's not something that we can see on the type of imaging that we do. Um, but I think in terms of thinking about um, particularly pharmacological interventions that, that, you know, there's definitely research underway. Yeah. So what are the, the standard rehabilitative strategies for stroke and how, so you're, you're developing methodologies for, it sounds like you're developing them and adapting ones that, that currently exist. Can you talk about some of those for the progressive yeah. aphasias? So the goal is to maximize communication for our patients, and we try to do that in a cognitively informed way. Um, There's a debate in the aphasia treatment literature um, about kind of two different approaches to treatment. There is the impairment-based approach and then the functional approach. And I, I don't believe that this, I think this is an artificial dichotomy. Um, The impairment-based approach is the kind of intervention that identifies a deficit and develops a treatment based on sort of cognitive linguistic principles, what we think the level of the impairment is from a cognitive standpoint, and then trying to rebuild that functionality. The functional approach is more about taking a look at your patient as a person, thinking about their life, the thing that they can't do well anymore, trying to help them to do that better. So if they want to be able to go to the coffee shop and converse with their friends, what skills do we need to target to allow them to do that better? So we don't care about the deficit. We care about the person. And I'm, I'm lumped by people into the impairment-based camp because the kind of work that I do is, is intentionally um, informed by cognitive models of how we think the language system works. Um, I think we should be doing all of the above and that if we go to one extreme or the other, we are doing our patients a disservice. I think we can design cognitively informed interventions or impairment-based interventions, if you will, that also take into account the functional needs of the patient. So how much does that distinction go along with the distinction that you were talking about in terms of uh, uh, diagnostic frameworks and whether people believe in them or not? Are they this the same people? That, uh... That's a good question. They, they're not necessarily the same people. Um, I think I'll, that scientists who would have us do away with, language scientists who would have us do away with um, syndromic distinctions um, think that we actually lose valuable information when we, when we approach trying to understand how the language system works by binning people. And I certainly understand that. Um, I don't think you should design a study where your question is um, to, 
involves trying to learn something about the, the cognitive or neural architecture for language, and you're approaching that from a syndromic standpoint. There's too much heterogeneity in a syndrome. I, I, it annoys me, on the other hand, when I read a paper and it's a bunch of stroke patients and they don't tell me what the aphasia type is because it's a snapshot that conveys a lot of... Instead, I get a table that's, you know... 20 lines by 20 lines with test scores, and I can't digest it nearly as easily. Um, I, so I, that's a long-winded way of saying, no, I don't think they're necessarily the same people, but probably there is some overlap. Um, I think we all just need to shake hands on the should treatment be functional question, because I think we can, we can do all of the above for stroke patients and also for progressive aphasia patients. One of the things that um, you mentioned, the one of the treatments that you were using is using these over-rehearsed uh, speech samples. And that's something that you see preserved in severe aphasia, right? Mm-hmm. So that you, that you can't talk, but you can sing happy birthday. Right. Um, and so it was interesting to me to see that parallel. And I, as a, somebody that doesn't study the clinical side of it, but is trying to figure out where those things are stored in the brain, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, uh, I, I was wondering what you think that transition is, like when going from trying to produce it yourself to having this over-rehearsed memory of it and then being able to produce it. What is that transition in the brain? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think we have a good answer to that. I think the mechanism for, so this is the intervention where we basically have people re- repeatedly rehearsed uh, some some scripted content, and we do this by asking them to speak in unison with a video model of a healthy speaker, and they become more fluent, and that fluent, intelligible speech is preserved even with disease progression. So I think you're absolutely right that it has to do with taking propositional speech and making it more automatized. And, and, and we do see in Patients who have significant aphasia that automatic speech is preserved. Like you said, they can count, they can say the days of the week, they can say the Lord's Prayer, they can they can sing. That's a slightly different issue um, that's not so much about automatic speech but about melody probably, or maybe both. Um, so for a recent paper where we published some of the, the treatment data, I wanted to try to talk about that. Uh, and I did allude to these clinical findings where automatic speech is preserved um, and dug into the literature to try to, to discern, well, is it, are we making speech more subcortical? Like, is this becoming more striatal? And I think the, the learning that takes place with speech entrainment is more implicit kind of, a more implicit kind of learning. There, no one has done imaging work looking at automatic speech that I've been able to find. Do you have some insight into well, that? Well, no, I'm glad you said that because I've been looking for it. <laughs> so I'm glad to know it's not there. Well, it's interesting because this is something that my students and I are struggling with because we're trying to get at this idea of what happens uh, with concepts like simple math problems mm-hmm. that become over-rehearsed. And when you go from a child state to an adult state, you, ha- you see this transition in uh, both in the behavior and in the brain response, but like, where is it going, right? Like, what what is happening? Why do you not no longer need to access the meaning of it to still be able to produce it? So this, it, we're we're puzzled by this, and we can't seem to find an answer in the literature. So I was hoping you had one. <laughs> Sorry, not yet. Um, but that I, it's really interesting that you say that. My son has this math 
program that he does at school called mm -hmm. Formative Loop. Are you familiar no. with this? And I think it's about promoting math fluency because they basically have it, them doing this timed, these timed exercises that are incredibly repetitive. And he hates it. Mm -hmm. um, but I did ask him, like, do you feel like you're getting faster mm -hmm. at doing this and having to think about it less? And he said, well, yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess this concept of making a behavior more automatic mm -hmm. is kind of broadly like the, beneficial. Like the math tables of yeah, the past. Uh, exactly. Yeah. The math tables are the present. At the present. They still do it. They still, still do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah still doing okay. it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Throw in some conceptualization, too, but okay. they're still doing it. <laughs> Actually, I didn't help. But yeah. I yeah. didn't study enough. Yeah. So, so it's actually interesting because you showed that after uh, that your patients, uh, once they had these, re rehearsed these um, uh, little speech samples that, mm -hmm. you, that they memorized, uh, there was an increase in activity in MTG in particular. And in the literature, uh, that's the place where people claim these automated uh, access to the phonetic memory of two times four is eight lives. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so I found that an interesting parallel. That I was wondering, but is that does that mean that this part of the brain holds just the sound memory, or is it the the memory of what the word is or what it means? Or I mean, that that so. Uh, posterior, middle, and inferior temporal cortex. If you dig into the language literature. It's like the insula. It does everything. <laughs> it's involved in, uh, you know, it's been in ep epilepsy studies has been called the basal temporal language area. So involved in, in, and it's been purportedly involved in lexical semantic retrieval of words. Um, Julius Fridrickson called it a visual motor speech area. So it's involved in language production, but I think there's, imaging and patient evidence to suggest that this is a uh, it's a heteromodal area it's a convergence zone for lack of a better term um, but that's that's really interesting what what you just said because I I think I need to think beyond the language literature to more broadly um, work looking at automation of behavior mm -hmm. to try to understand this better yeah so in your in your functional imaging studies where you look at actual network connectivity and you in these patients that show this transference to MTG, how is the sort of the broader network shifting? Do, do you see changes in, in the sort of global level of interaction with that yeah. MTG? So we're so. just starting to, to do pre to post treatment imaging. Um, everything that we've done thus far is looking at the image, the neuroimaging picture pre-treatment to try to understand the status of the system, it's kind of as a predictor of treatment response. Um, it turns out that it's much easier to get your research funded if in neurodegenerative disease if you don't have a longitudinal imaging component um, <laughs> of any sort. Uh, and so I didn't, I, I have not actually tried, but we are actually collecting data in patients when we can pre and post treatment to try to understand what's happening. Um, the posterior MTG is volumetrically um, correlated with treatment response. So it's a relatively spared region anatomically and within that speech, speech production and fluency network that's anchored by the inferior frontal gyrus. Of all the region, subregions of interest within that network, that's the region that was predictive of responsiveness to this intervention. And that in, in the previous imaging work with healthy individuals, that region sort of comes online specifically when people are engaged in this 
uh, unison speech production with an audiovisual model. So hence the the hypothesis that there's something about <clears throat> visual encoding of speech there. Um, and I do think that the idea that we're taking something with the, with this intervention and and capitalizing on the visual information, um, I think there's something to that. When you think about in development, if you have a little baby who's learning to speak, they watch adults' mouths. It's part of how they learn to 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 produce speech sounds. Um, and we don't train people on articulation for this therapy, but they're watching the speakers, the healthy speaker's mouth, and then receiving that, the, the auditory input as well. And I think it's, I know it's the combination of both of those things that seems to be potent. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about the Nun study and that the people that developed dementia later in life were the ones who had less developed writing. You know, the vocabulary was not as developed sentences. You're familiar with this uh-huh. you know, when they I, entered the sisterhood. Right, so they had these longitudinal writing samples and then could, I, I'm not super familiar with it, but the, the idea is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that those who had less sophisticated writing samples were more likely to develop some kind of dementia. Yes. Right? And uh, writing is a language skill, even. Right. Yeah, so a number of potential things at play there. I mean, there's certainly this idea of cognitive reserve and that people who are more educated may be more resili- resilient to pathological processes in the brain. So maybe better writing is a manifestation of being more educated. But they all entered at the same point, I think, at that So can we assume that they all had the same kind of training up until that point? I don't know. I thought they entered when they were 18 at that point. There's also, in at least in progressive aphasia, some work showing that people with frank developmental disorders, and that's not what we're talking about here, we're talking about normal variability, but people who had developmental language impairment, dyslexia or even stuttering, were more likely to develop a language-based dementia, so a progressive aphasia, um, than people, there was a higher representation of people with developmental language impairment than you would predict by chance suggesting that maybe there's some selective vulnerability conferred by maybe a morphological difference um, that was underlying the the developmental language impairment as well. Um, So I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. Do you see differences when people have, um, when they first enter, when they're in the mildest phase, do you see fundamental differences between people that are suffering dementia in a much broader scope? Across individuals? Uh, Across individual differences? No. Well, in comparison, you know, you have your control patients and you Mm -hmm. have these patients and they have a deficit, but do they have other deficits? I mean, they're suggesting there's fundamental differences between them. And and if you could have looked at them pre-symptomatically, which I don't think you have that capability, right? No, I wish that we, I wish that we did. Um, yeah, so heterogeneity is the rule and not the exception in, in clinical work. And I, I wish anytime we, we have some group level finding and we get excited about it, I have to remind myself and my students that 
yes, it's really, it's amazing that we found this, given all the noise um, that is in clinical data, but also part of, the, part of the reason maybe why we don't find what we're looking for sometimes is that we don't know how to model all of these individual factors that are so important in how a disease manifests. So everything from pre-morbid language abilities and language exposures and I mean we can capture education in this very loose way with years of education but there have to be more nuanced ways to think about just the environment that the person has been in and how cognitively engaged they've been throughout their life up until the point when they had a dementia diagnosis. Um, all of those individual factors are certainly very, very important. Um, I know that, so we're doing work in the lab looking at people who are bilingual versus monolingual. Um, and this is, this is an, uh, uh, definitely an important factor that many studies just lump everybody together. And clearly there are differences in how people who are bilingual, um, how th the way that aphasia manifests after a stroke, but also in primary progressive aphasia. And the more we can capture their language proficiency and usage over time, the better we can understand how their languages are going to change relative to one another, but also relative to monolingual speakers. So you're absolutely right. There's a tremendous amount of heterogeneity. It's almost like we don't even know, even if we, if we had a, a crystal ball that allowed us to look back in time and see all the things that we needed to see to fully capture the, the pre-morbid profile, I'm not sure we would even know which questions to ask. But in bilingual patients, that both languages suffer the same deficits, like completely parallel? Or not completely parallel. Yeah, so um, there, there are a number of factors there. It has to do with um, when the second language was learned um, the different contexts in which the languages have been used over the person's life. So did they have one language that they used in an educational setting? Um, one language that they used predominantly in their career? Are they a balanced bilingual? Do they use both of their languages pretty frequently? Or did they, were they uh, using their first language a whole bunch throughout childhood, but then they emigrated to another country and stopped using that language entirely? Um, what I can say is that in aphasia, both languages will be affected. It's not like you see amazing preservation of one versus the other. Um, but I think it's fairly safe to say that with some insult to the brain that affects language, people who are bilingual become less bilingual and they tend to default more to their dominant language, um, the one that they were using more, that they were more proficient at before they had the stroke or the onset of dementia. I want to close because we're running out of time uh, on this idea of um, uh, moving away from some of the impairment language that you're kind of interested in and, 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 and moving toward the sense of like developing creativity, for example, mm -hmm. in conjunction with the developing aphasia. Can you talk about, about that process and what it actually means? Because I, I don't, I'm not able to nutshell it at all. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not able to nutshell it either, but that's a good verb. Um, so <laughs> the, there's some interesting work coming out of UCSF and other places. This is really the brainchild of, of Bruce Miller at the Memory and Aging Center at UCSF, where he's had a longstanding interest in creativity in the context of dementia. And um, so he studies emergent 
creativity in people with a dementia diagnosis. So these are people who were not necessarily particularly artistic before the onset of dementia. And then they develop these interests and aptitudes even for often visual art. Um, And so people will start painting, they'll start sculpting. We've had an individual who became obsessive about arranging flowers. Um, And I, I think that underlyingly this, and and I I presented the case during the talk today about um, a specific patient, and there's a a podcast about her, um, a Radiolab podcast about this patient, AA, who was a biologist, and she developed this interest in painting and started to paint obsessively, and, um, and they actually did some imaging with her at UCSF and found that there was enhancement both structurally and functionally of these posterior regions that are thought to be involved in transmodal sensory processing. So maybe kind of creating a more abstract sensory representation that pulls from different modalities. Um, but that, that maybe that's not how the, the normal healthy brain even really works, in part because it's inhibited by these overpowering frontal lobes um, that sort of dampen that that. Uh, that response probably for a um, for a good reason um, evolutionarily, but with with patients and with this specific patient, what they found was that uh, perhaps the imaging suggested that she she developed this visual creativity um, because her frontal lobes were gradually going offline, uh, specifically her left frontal lobe, and that's what ultimately manifested as this debilitating language impairment, but early on was was manifesting as something actually really kind of positive, um, and that is her interest in and aptitude for, for painting. So um, this is something we see in, in lots of our patients, and I think that broadly the idea is that neurodegeneration is not all about loss of function. Um, certainly we see the structure and function of the brain deteriorating, but there are parts of the brain, not to be oversimplistic, but this reflects my level of understanding, um, that are inhibiting other parts of the brain, which in the context of damage may be released to, to perform in ways that, that they were not before. Not necessarily adaptive ways, but... It's interesting to use the word creativity to describe that because in some ways it just seems like resilience. Mm. You know, the inability to express yourself in one modality can then transfer to another. And I don't... I mean, that, may I don't be a, that may be a part of it in some of our patients. In, in some of them, though, the creativity predates any obvious cognitive or linguistic impairment. It's the first sign that something's going haywire, but nobody knows that anything is wrong yet, not even the person with the disease. I do think that as things progress, people see outlets that are non-linguistic, our patients do, as a way to express themselves, and that that's very, very positive. And I encourage people to do that. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Henry, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Is that okay?